Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined on the show this week by our chairman, Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. How are you? I'm doing very well. Sean, I wanted you on the show this week to discuss a topic that's a bit close to my heart, and that is what I think is one of the most powerful interventions, cultural interventions organizations can do, which is to push decision-making and problem-solving down the organization. However, what I also see is we've kind of lost the art of effective team problem-solving And instead, we just kind of, rather than practicing it, we just assume it's going to happen. We assume it's going to work. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and particularly your perspective of, you know, maybe how it used to be done and and what we could learn today. Sure. I mean, like you, my experience is that I look at uh, survey results using the OCI and the OEI with organizations. And when you look at the summary bar chart of their causal factors, so often, one of the ones that's very low is employee involvement. And as I mm. say, look, it's not going to cost you much to do that. Mm. You're going to have to get specialists in to figure out how to do that. And it really is a money ball. It has significant impact on the culture. And so if you can improve that, you'll get a huge shift to construct it with one simple causal factor. So you're right, it, it is a bit of a lost art. I mean, we're, we're so surrounded by information nowadays that teams make better decisions, for instance, that it's assumed that that will happen if we do it. But in fact, the research is unclear about that. And there's a significant body of very, very good research that actually illustrates that teams make poorer decisions than individuals because they have not had the knowledge and training and experience to build on to do that. So it really requires going back a fair way in history around the organisational development process to understand that. That's interesting, Sean, just with the teams make poorer decisions, you know, because the conventional wisdom, if you like, is, you know, two heads are better than one, you know, that kind of stuff. But what I'm hearing you say is we can't just assume that a team is going to be better. It depends on how they go about it as a group. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the assumption that we have, and it should be a safe assumption, one would hope, but human beings being what we are, it doesn't work quite that easily. So all it takes is a dominant person in the group who manages to influence that decision-making process, and they're wrong. You get the whole group going down the river the wrong way, all paddling in the same direction, very happy with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder as well, Sean, you know, you talked about data and just thinking more broadly about that. Today, we've got so much information at our fingertips. Yeah. I kind of wonder if people think that's going to solve the problem for them. You know, if we can just throw more data at it, we'll have the answer. And the reality is there's always an unknown, you know, particularly if we're making a decision about something that's going to affect the future. You know, no no one's a fortune teller, you know, so. It's quite like H.L. Mencken's famous phrase that for every complex problem there is an there is a solution that is simple and wrong. Right. So we, we work in a very complex environment. So no one thing, uh, the whole notion of unintended consequences. So we require systems thinking approach, as they call it, mm. to organizational change, which looks at interactions between various factors and variables and phenomena within the organization and how they influence each other. 
And at the end of the day, I mean, one of the absolute truisms that I was told many, many years ago is that managers exist primarily to make decisions. So that's why we have a manager of a group in order to make decisions around that group or that function, whatever it might be. Mm. But what we've tended to do is to hold on to that truism and forget that part of it is actually we can make significantly better groups if we use good process and we train people to use good process and we then involve them in that process to help make decisions. So there's this assumption that when I become a manager that I now have to make those decisions and I have to make them on my own. And I've even heard people over the years sort of use expressions somewhat akin to, but if the people make the decision for me, well, actually it's with me, not for me, but if the people make the decision for me, what does that leave for me to do? Mm -hmm. And that that tells you an awful lot about their thinking, unfortunately. Mm. So just on the the process and and all that, Sean, you know, I, I sit in with a lot of teams who are working on problems. So we have a series of problem-solving situations, simulations, yeah. that typically will give people a phobia about catching any kind of transport because they cr- inevitably crash a plane <laughs> or a helicopter or a boat or something yeah. um, somewhere. But what's interesting about that is it's kind of pure problem-solving because it takes away yeah. people aren't yeah. expertise in surviving yeah. you know, a plane yeah. crash or whatever, although I have had an expert before. And they have to use just problems on what what, what yep. do we know and, and all that. But so often I see teams just go off the rails. Yep. And really, from my experience, it's for lack of a decent process. Yep. You know, it, they it just is. kind of, where do we start? And the most common opening I see is, what did you have? What did you have? What did you have? They go around the group and realize everyone had a different thing. And then it's just like, dang, where do we go from here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's one of the truisms of democracy, unfortunately, is voting is the single least effective available decision-making process to the human race. Uh. And so as soon as you start to do that, what did you put, what did you put, et cetera, you're starting to get into what's technically called the nominal group technique, and it's a very ineffective form of decision-making. So we narrow our thinking down to those options straight away, which is Uh. against all the rules of good process for decision-making. So I guess one way of introducing it is to talk about what we do on the accreditation program around LSI, GSI, et cetera, and that is the uh, the Norman RF. I like the quote who did these things, not to show my erudibility, but hey, he did all the work, so he should get the credit for it. Norman Meyer was a psychologist in Michigan, and uh, he created this, we call it a simple equation, ES equals Q times A, so effective mm. solutions equals the quality of the solution multiplied by the acceptance of the solution. This is a very long time ago. This is in the 60s. And he said, look, with this new movement towards involving people, the so-called human relations movement that was coming down the pike in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, what we now know as organizational development, he said, you know, we're going to get high A, we're going to get high acceptance by getting people involved in the decision because people are more committed to the decisions they're involved in than those that are foisted upon them. Uh He said, we run the risk of lacking quality because we don't have expertise in there. Uh So the whole idea of uh, ES equals Q times A is that uh, if you use an external expert, for instance, you might get 10 out of 10 quality but you might get two out of 10 acceptance because it's being foisted upon them. So 10 times two equals 20. He said, on the other hand, if you go down the human relations process, you might get a 10 out of 10 acceptance because people are involved in it, but you run the risk of maybe a two out of 10 quality, two times 10 equals 20, you're no further forward than you were before. Uh So the object, the exercise, obviously, with that equation is how do you get a 10 times 10? And And that's where... 
that's where he invented, for want of a word, that simple equation of effective solutions equals high quality multiplied by high acceptance. What I like about that formula is it's the two sides of the coin. Because if we're going to be effective in our solution, obviously we need a high quality solution. That makes sense. But a solution's only as good as it is implemented. Correct. You know, and so we've all sat in those meetings where, you know, someone pushed a decision through, didn't involve people, you know, we didn't really accept it. And they might even be right. You know, and maybe we all agree to it. Everyone nods their head, says yes. We leave the meeting and nothing happens. You know, no one no one executes their part of it and all that stuff. So yep. even if the person was right, it's not effective because we didn't implement it or we didn't do it very well. And I think people forget that part, Sean. You know, like as long as I'm right, that's what matters. And yes, of course that's important, but we need to bring people along with us. Otherwise, it's not valuable. Yeah, it's been my experience that poor execution is largely to do with lack of commitment from group members to the decision. So they may have looked like they were involved in the decision, but in the example that you use, they're dominated by one individual. Mm. And so they all agreed with that individual because they sounded like they knew what they were talking about, perhaps. So yes, they agreed with the decision, but they're not really agreeing with it from a commitment point of view. So when it comes to actually leave the room and then execute the decision, nobody does anything because they're just hoping that something else will happen and to replace it. Mm. The whole whole idea of the process is to negate the impact of the likes of one dominant individual. Mm. Well, I was going to say that, Sean, and, and from what I've seen and, and what I've experienced myself, you know, we've got the quality and acceptance side of the formula. But in my my opinion, if you have a really good process that you use, yeah. it actually takes care of a lot of the issues that can come up on the acceptance side as well. Yeah. You know, so so and we can get into that. Maybe that's the best way, Sean. So like yeah. when we talk about the quality side, you know, yeah. how do teams make quality decisions? How do they actually do that? The simple answer to that, which is a simple answer to a complex problem. Yeah. Uh, Uh, is to use the problem-solving process. And it's not that straightforward, obviously, but obviously the first step is to understand what the problem-solving process is. And uh, for those who are involved with human synergistics and its various materials and approaches and philosophies, probably don't know that human synergistics first began with a problem-solving tool called Desert Survival. So that was Clay Lafferty's first invention, if you like, followed closely by Subarctic, having having burnt to death, let's freeze to death <laughs> as an alternative. And Desert was designed to teach executive management groups how to make good decisions using the problem-solving process. So the problem-solving process, again, in its own right, sounds quite simple. And it's a, a number of steps, but it's how you use those steps that become important. So the first step in problem-solving is to identify what the problem is. So you might call that in strategic planning an environmental scan or something like that. So various executions of problem solving will have their own terminology about it. But it's to do with understanding the situation and identifying what the fundamental problem is that you have to solve. So the whole idea with something like Desert Survival, as you said, they're non-content specific. So they're situations where most of us hopefully have never been and never will be and it relies on our ability to solve a problem, not to apply our knowledge. Uh So we first have to collectively identify the problem. And what happens then in that process is, let me just take a step to one side, one of the reasons that groups make poor decisions is that they did not handle conflict effectively, and one of the reasons they have conflict is that they actually see the situation quite differently. 
So in desert, I might say, look, I'm a marathon runner, I'm super fit, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to walk the 50 kilometers out and I'm going to survive. And so that's their perception of it. My perception mm-hmm. might be, well, I'm not fit and all the rest of it. There's no way I'm going to do that. So I'm going to sit here and stay here. So now we're going to try and convince me to go and I've got to try and convince the other person to stay. You're on an absolute hiding to nothing. So the first step before we even talk about whether we're staying or going or anything like that is to understand the situation. So what's going on? How hot is it? What sort of shade do we have? Blah, 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 blah. And come down to what our fundamental issue is that we have to deal with here. And to continue with the desert as an example, the fundamental issue obviously is something along the lines of dehydration. Now, a very wise old professor of mine, again, many, many years ago, coined a very important phrase that I've lived as much as I could with my clients, and that is the more ways you can define and describe a problem, the more solution possibilities become available. So having identified the problem as being dehydration, whatever it might be, whatever problem it is that you're dealing with, the next step is to try and describe and define that problem in as many ways as you can. So what does dehydration mean? Let's understand what that is. And And this statement is designed to say that the solution is inherent in the definition of the problem. So if we define dehydration as being loss of body water, then obviously we don't want to lose any body water. If we define dehydration as we need lots of water, then obviously we're going to have to do something about getting any water we can. Right. If we we define dehydration as being very hot and the sun is going to cause that dehydration, then obviously we should get out of the sun. But we're not going into those solutions. We're merely defining that problem in as many ways as we can. So Mm -hmm. step one in effective problem solving is understand the situation and identify what the problem is. So I, 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 sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, Sean, like with teams I see in the simulation, how many teams skip this step? Yeah. 95% of them (laughs) or something like that, a huge, huge percentage anyway. And what's interesting is, I reckon it happens even more in the workplace with a real problem. We all work here, right? Surely we all know the same facts. Surely we're all on the same page. But you might not be. And therefore, hey, it's really hard to actually solve a problem together because we're coming at it from totally different fact and assumption bases. Exactly. So one of the funny ones is uh, simulations is reef. Where uh, I mean, everybody's scared of sharks, given the stories that you read in the media, etc. So with reef, mm. I think from him, you have to go from one part of the reef to another. So somebody who's convinced that there's sharks all over the place hanging around, just waiting for you to get into the water so they can eat you, they ain't going anywhere. Mm. And so it's not so much the swimming from one part to another, it's the fear of the sharks that drives that thinking. So, I mean, I've actually done this in real world problems with executive groups and seen people turn to each other who have worked together for like, you know, five or six or seven years and say something like, I never knew you thought like that about that problem. And that's where you're now mm-hmm. starting to get a shared understanding. So if you can get a shared understanding of what's going on, the conflict will be minimized and the conflict will be about the details. But let me digress for one moment and I'll come back to that problem-solving process because what you said just before is, that, you know, we sit down, we let's just pretend we're doing something like desert. We then we start to say, well, okay, Dominic, what did you rate first? And what did you, Sean, what did you rate first, et cetera? And we, we're jumping immediately to solutions. And one of the things I love about having been in this business now for nearly 50 years is that some of these incredible theorists way back then can now be borne out through actual science today. So one of the things that Norman Meyer said, for instance, around problem-solving process 
is that you should focus on understanding the problem before you focus on solving the problem. Because once you get into solution-mindedness, as he called it, it's very difficult to go back to problem-mindedness. Uh. So the minute we sit down and say, so what did you do, what did you do, what did you do, et cetera, we're into solution orientation. So we're very, we will find it difficult to go back to problem-mindedness. And why that intrigues me is nowadays with neuroscience and all the imagery equipment that we have with CT scans and MRIs, et cetera, is you can actually see the brain has a certain part that deals with idea generation and another part that deals with idea evaluation. Hmm. And once that part of evaluation becomes more active than the identification part, it's very difficult for the human brain to go back to identification. So as soon as we start talking solutions, we're limiting our understanding of the problem. We just physically can't go back there the way the brain operates. Fascinating. And he he developed that theory, I don't know, like 50, 60 years before anybody had heard of neuroscience. So that first step, identify the problem, understand the problem, and so that we, before we begin the next step of the process, we are fundamentally agreeing that our problem is this, 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 that, and that, or whatever it might be. So the next step then is setting the objective, and this is something that, of course, everybody will be familiar with. What is our objective, given the problems that we have? And so we have that discussion. So again, coming back to the idea generation, I mean, I've sat in a real-world situation, I've sat in a board meeting, which is full of you know very, very high-level lawyers and accountants from the various big partnerships and firms, et cetera, and a new one's just been appointed. Mm. And so the, the chairperson is leading off the meeting saying, you know, we've got to talk about this strategic approach, blah, 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 presentations from the executive members, and then they get into talking about understanding the problem because they've been taught the problem-solving process. Sitting down the corner is a new board member who's just been appointed a month or so ago, so it's one of his early board meetings, and he says, look, I think we should do this. And the chairman just quietly looked at him and said, that's a very good idea but we're not talking about what we want to do yet. We're trying to collectively understand the problem. So just hold that idea and bring it forward when we're at that point. Uh. And that's a first-class chairperson running a very, very good group. So second step, what is our objective? What is it that we want to achieve? You could set a minimum objective, a maximum objective, and all that other stuff around goal setting, et cetera. You know, it's, it's interesting in there as well, Sean, because I'll see groups that either don't set the objective or they'll yeah. talk about the objective yeah. But yeah. never quite agree yeah. on what it actually is, you know, yeah. versus the teams that can be explicit about, you know, what this is what it is. And we actually land on something. Yeah. It has to be quite. And that's another reason, of course, why your example of execution being poor is we don't actually know what the hell we're trying to achieve. We don't quite know what uh-huh. the hell we've got to do to achieve it, do we? Uh-huh. So, again, quite simple. So the third step is generation of alternatives. So uh-huh. what are the various ways we can solve the problem and meet that objective? Uh-huh. And again, important thing that I was taught some time ago is generate as many alternatives as you possibly can, and it includes from a business sense, do nothing, because that might actually turn out to be the best decision ultimately. So groups immediately start to identify alternative ways of increasing revenue or whatever the problem might be. Mm. But they should also, the discipline process is the so-called case study method, is add in, do nothing, so that you evaluate that as well. So this is not, not evaluating, it's just saying, look, here's, here's one way we could solve it, whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter. Here's another way we can solve the problem and meet the objective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then the next step is to evaluate each of those alternatives and uh, use some sort of process, whatever pros and cons is the most simplistic one, 
We talk about uh, adverse consequences in terms of what could go wrong and how likely is it that it would go wrong if you follow that particular approach, Uh. and that works very powerfully, and so on and so forth. So evaluating each of those alternatives. Now, again, poorly functioning groups may begin to, let's just pretend they have a list of five alternatives. They might get down to number three, and that sounds really exciting. They get really excited about number three, and they have a big discussion around number three, and they forget all about number four and five. Mm. So I've seen that happen literally hundreds of times. So we now evaluate each of those alternatives, and given those evaluations, one or two or whatever, depending upon the circumstances we're in, will emerge as being that's what we're going to pursue. And now you're down into tactical planning. So having decided we're going to do this, what do we need to do, when, by whom, how, etc. And that's the execution planning part of the deal. What I think is interesting, Sean, with the teams I see be really successful or vice versa, the teams who are not so successful, is they fall into a really common pitfall, which is, well, two pitfalls. One is advocating. Yeah. Right? So this is Dominic's idea, that Sean's yep. idea. Yeah. Right? And now I'm kind of dug in and I'm going to argue for my idea against yep. your idea or other ideas. Yeah. And the, the risk of that is I'm dug in. I can't actually move now. <laughs> you know, I can't see things from another perspective. Yeah. And it, it becomes less about what are the merits of the idea suggested by Dominic and what are the I- merits of the idea suggested by Sean. And it's more about, I feel like I need to win because my ego is kind of tied up with it. You know, and to say to reject my idea is at some level to reject me, you know. And so this is where I was talking about a good process can actually help us solve some of these interpersonal yep. issues because that's not good because. Whoever comes out, Sean or Dominic, one of us is going to be kind of cheesed off or we're not going to be committed to the other one. And so instead, what we're saying with steps three and four, what are all the alternatives? You know, we could stay, go, whatever, up, down, whatever it is. And it's not Sean's idea, Dominic's idea. These are just the alternatives. And then when we evaluate them, we should all be able to talk to the merits of A, B, C, whatever they are. Absolutely. One, three, this, four, five, you know. This is the whole idea of synergy, that you might have said it needs to be black and I say it needs to be white, and we argue over that. And as part of that argument, we might actually end up agreeing that it should be green. It's not black nor white. Mm. And so that's the whole idea of synergy, two plus two equals five. If you work effectively together as a group, you'll end up with something greater than the simple sum of the parts. Mm. And it's that behavioral stuff, and it's not for naught that after developing desert and uh, subarctic clay's next part of his life was on developing the LSI so that people could get some feedback from their colleagues right. <laughs> about how they do behave. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and the other just important point you mentioned as well, Sean, is with the example of the, the board chair is separate the steps. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So we're, we're, we're going to squarely be in step one, identify the situation and the problem. You know, then we move on to step two. What are the objectives? Let's yep. close that discussion. Let's agree what the objectives are. Yep. Then we get the alternatives. Then we evaluate them. There's also, you know, the other pitfall I see is assessing ideas as they're suggested. Yep. You know, I think yep. A, and yep. that's like, that is a dumb idea for whatever yep. reason, or alternatively, that's a brilliant idea. But either way, we've now shut down possibilities Correct. you know Correct. you've got them from one part of the brain to another and it's very difficult to go back through that gate that's it so yeah. so it's really s- separating those steps let's just get them out you know and then move on the other great thing about that is it moves the conversation along too yes because how many teams do you see where it's like 
you know, they're, they're jumping back and forth from different spots. You know, they're coming up with ideas, they're evaluating them, they're going back there, you know, and it kind of goes around and around and it feels like we're not moving towards a solution. We're just kind of going in circles. And so having these steps actually allows us to keep moving forward and progressing forward to actually landing on on something that works. Yeah, my, my advice for senior groups or even middle-level groups for that matter, I guess, is that if you feel that the group does not use good problem-solving process, have a facilitator come in to facilitate it. It's very difficult to both facilitate and participate. And so in the sort of the days of learning and training around the use of the problem-solving process, it's helpful for the executive leader to participate and have an external consultant or team development person or whatever come in and do that kind of stuff Mm. just to teach the process. Mm. And also, of course, the executive learns from that. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I've been in this business for nearly 50 years. Theoretically, I know quite a bit. I am in charge of the business and all the sort of bullshit stuff about being chairman, et cetera, et cetera. So I have had to learn over the years. I actually learned it from a client many years ago. To use the expression, you've got to remember I'm usually more certain than I am right. And so when I'm involved in a strategy discussion with the senior leadership team, because I am and I have this word chairman written across my forehead, when I say something, there is a risk that people will agree with me. And because I'm certain, I'll sound as if I know what I'm talking about. Mm. And I may and I may not actually <laughs> recognize myself that I don't have a clue what the hell I'm talking about. So when I find myself getting into that mode, I mean, I just look at them and say, just remember, I can usually more certain than I am right. And it gives them license to disagree with me. Yeah, it's interesting. So what's the impact we have on the group personally? And, and one of those is what's my position in the group? Because yep. if you're the leader, naturally, you're going to have some more you know, gravitas to what, what you say and what you think. Well, that's, that's what I like about David Rock's stuff on status. You know, all, all relationships are defined by power balance of some description, so we need to recognize and address that. Mm. And so that that's the quality side, Sean. So we had the steps, so identify the situation problem, set the objectives, get the alternatives out, evaluate them, take action, and then the final one is follow up, right? So yep. how do we check in on how we're traveling? Yeah, how yeah. do we make sure we're actually progressing and implementing that kind yep. of stuff? So let's say we've got a 10 out of 10 there, but people aren't on board, you know, perhaps, which actually, if you followed those steps, they would be on board, you know, like, if, <laughs> and that's why I'm saying a, a good process really takes yeah. care of a lot of stuff. But let's jump to the other side, the acceptance side of the equation. What kind of stuff sits under there, Sean? Well, this, I mean, this is a really interesting. I again, hark back to Norman Meyer's work in developing that equation. He then went on to argue that impacting the, acceptance or the group activity part of the deal was actually quite difficult. So by developing a good process, that tends, he argued, to look after much of the interpersonal stuff in its own right. So where we get people dominating the conversation because we're having a free-for-all about what we think we need to do, that person can't dominate quite so much as when this part of the conversation is only about understanding the problem. Right. And as a good uh, team leader or chairperson, whatever it is, I would elicit information from every member of the group. And nobody gets away with just sitting there staring at the table kind of thing. So that influence of that dominant individual is reduced by the process. So he argued, and, and a part of me agrees very strongly with this, I have to say, is that if the group can use good process, and we call those task skills or task process in the algorithm that we provide with the tools, the interpersonal part of it will look after itself. But Strictly, the interpersonal stuff is uh, 
effective conflict management, which interestingly enough has to do with humanistic encouraging Uh. as both a personal style and a group style and a cultural style for that matter. Uh. That effective, constructive differing, it's called, is a very, very powerful interpersonal process to you. So of course, you and I will disagree about things. It's now a question of how we handle that disagreement. And of course, when we disagree, we keep coming up with all the arguments that I can push to you to try and convince you that I'm right and you're wrong and vice versa the other way. Uh. And it's called the psychology of persuasion. And so one of the techniques that we try to, to use in that part of the deal is to, rather than judging, strive to understand. So rather than simply trying to convince you why you think it should be black, I will try harder to understand why you think it should be black. But the quid pro quo is that you'll try harder to understand why I think it should be yellow or whatever. And so in in trying to, I mean, there's been all sorts of case studies around that over the years. I remember a very famous one a long time ago was somebody implemented this in union negotiations, which weren't going anywhere. So they had the union sit on the other side of the table and argue management's point of view, and management sit on the union side of the table and argue the union's point of view. Uh Uh-huh. And they actually came to a very solid agreement. (laughs) That's but one simple example of reaching consensus through understanding what the other person is trying to say. Because as soon as we get into that evaluation stuff, it's very hard to get back into the understanding stuff. So if I'm sitting here judging what you're saying, saying, no, that's crap, no, that's wrong, et cetera, I'm not trying to understand what you say. So if any process that helps you understand what other people are saying, the better. And that's where, I mean, when I say process, look, many of these things are available and taught at various university courses, et cetera, like Kurt Lewin's force field analysis in terms of what are the forces driving us towards change, what are the forces stopping us from being able to make that change. And so, again, we're just focusing on ideas when we do that kind of thing rather than the valuation of ideas. The other is uh, good group leadership. So that's where I say in the early days, it's wise to put a facilitator in place. But the the quietest person in the room often has the best ideas in the room. And uh, it's the whole notion of extroversion versus introversion. So brainstorming, for instance, which everybody's been taught, learned somewhere along the line, actually reinforces extroversion, not introversion. So if you can do a content analysis of how people function in a brainstorming session, you'll find the introverts say very little and the extroverts say a lot. So you might be getting lots of ideas, but you may be getting lots of ideas from a limited number of participants. Uh. So by using something that extracts information from the quiet ones that need not necessarily close down the noisy ones, you're actually getting a better breadth of information. So processes like that, so constructive differing, good leadership of the group in terms of getting people to participate, interfering where you need to interfere, as a leader when conflict is going in a negative direction. Then there's all the usual stuff that people get taught at management courses with active listening and that kind of thing. And Again, I mean, this all sounds very simple, but uh, it's quite complex stuff. Let me give you a very quick silly. So this is a riddle that people who listen to this can try and solve as mm. we go. And again, is Norman Meyer. And it's a an example of lack of active listening and the way in which we judge information as we get it. So the riddle goes something like this. A man had a window in the side wall of a garage, which he decided was too small. So he measured the window and found it was one metre high and one metre wide. He then sawed all the way around the outside edges of that window, and in doing so created a new window that is exactly twice as big as the original window. And when he checked his measurements, he found it was one metre high and one metre wide. What's happened? So that's the oh. rule.
So man had a window in the side wall of a garage, which he decided was too small. It was one metre high and one metre wide. He sawed all the way around the outside edges of that window, cutting a long story short, leaving out lots of irrelevant detail. He created a new window that is exactly twice as big as the original window. And then when he checked his measurements, he found the new window was one metre high and one metre wide. Oh, and so that's, that's yeah. the riddle to get people thinking about how you solve problems. Mm. So, I'm not sure, Sean. You're going to have to give it to me. <laughs> one metre high. Yeah, okay. See, see, see that? Before I give you the answer, let me give you the reasoning behind the answer. Each of us has what's technically called a personal schemata, a scheme. So we have our own C drive in our head, okay? So what happens when I say a man had a window in the side wall of a garage, which he figured was too small? He measured that window, went one metre high and one metre wide. Now, the average person will go a square, one metre high, one metre wide, and then fill in the other side and the bottom or the top to create a square. Right. Because your personal schemata, your C drive, when you go in there and say, please look up window, your picture of a window is that it's square. Uh-huh. And so therefore, when I say he doubled the size of the window, et cetera, et cetera, you now say, but it can't be like that. I mean, it, it's twice as big. It can't be still big. So when you find the information disagrees with your judgment, you get into fault finding with the information, not questioning your own judgment. Uh-huh. And that's fundamental to human nature, unfortunately. So the answer lies in the fact that actually the window was originally a diamond shape. So it was one metre high up the middle of the window, right. one metre wide across the middle, and you connect those four pieces and you have a diamond-shaped window. He then sort of all the way around the outside of those, creating a square window now, uh-huh. and that square window is exactly twice as big as the original diamond-shaped window. So his, his point is that unless you strive to understand, you will judge Mm. And so, therefore, you should ask open-ended questions. I mean, I've run this with groups, and they say, is the window this, is the window that, etc." And they're all asking it closed questions. And I keep saying, ask me an open question. There's one question that's going to give you the answer straight away. And that question is, what shape was the original window? Yes. Problem solved. Yeah, So we get, we get it. So it's a very good illustration of this, what the psychologists call personal schemata. I say square, you go to your C drive, you type in, uh, sorry, window. Win- yeah, type window is window, a square. Yep. Comes out window is a square. Hang on a minute. This does not compute. There's something wrong with the information. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've, I definitely great. went to my C drive. <laughs> <laughs> great, great little riddle to use at a workshop if you finish yeah, five minutes there. before lunch or something. <laughs> there you <laughs> what go. The hell do I do now? I'll keep it in my back pocket. Just thinking of that, Sean, with the different interpersonal processes. So, you know, one thing I often talk about is, you know, there's listening and supporting and, and stuff like this. And it's about genuinely listening. Yeah. You know, like I see groups where it's like polite turn taking. We're not interrupting each other, but we're not genuinely listening and responding and asking curious questions and stuff to each yeah. other. You know, I'm just yeah. kind of waiting until Sean's had his piece and then I'll say it. And you see it with teams where, you know, someone throws an idea out, it goes onto the table, through the table, down a black hole, never to be seen or mentioned again. <laughs> you know, and and then yeah. it's like, well, why is this person not bought into the solution? Because you never heard out their ideas either. Yeah, that's right. And so I often say, you know, as adults, I think we know not every decision can go our way. It's just not possible. Yep. But the difference is, is if we feel that we've been genuinely heard and our point has been genuinely considered, and if the team then goes a different way, I think we can live with that. Yep. It's when we feel like we haven't, they haven't really listened to me or they haven't really considered it 
that's when we've struggled to get on board. Yeah. You know, because yeah, it's unresolved. Yeah. Uh, we feel like we didn't get a fair hearing. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And this is uh, interesting how we deal with things. I mean, if I wind the clock back 30 years, consensus was one of the most important words that was used. Wind the clock forward 30 years today, consensus is a dirty word because it really got misinterpreted with agreement. And so the whole idea of consensus is I might disagree with it, but I'm prepared to live with it. And that's like a very vague definition. But I can see that it is the best decision that the group is going to make. But when we strive constantly for agreement, then we will always water things down to keep everybody happy. Mm-hmm. That's the old camel yep. uh, as a horse designed by committee mm-hmm. kind of statement, yep. isn't it? Yep, absolutely. And there is this assumption, by the way, that groups do make better decisions. So I think we started with this, that you know there is good research that suggests that actually some individuals are better off making decisions on their own and working in a group. So we need to be cognizant of that and not fall into this instant sort of belief that if we get teams making decisions, they will make better decisions. They may not. They will if they've been well-trained in the process, particularly the problem-solving process. And so that that was going to be my bill, Sean. I think what <laughs> – what because what happens is we throw a bunch of smart people together and we just assume. Yeah. Right? And, and think of like – that's like a sports team that just plays up, turns up on Saturdays. Yeah. You know, without practicing during the week. So – Problem solving is actually a skill, and it's a skill yes. we can build and work on and practice, and few teams do, you know? yep. and so I think it's a real opportunity. And there's a, a very famous one-liner in the OD industry. I haven't heard it for a while, and I think that we've lost it a bit, and that is an organizational process is ignore the process at your peril. So having said this is the first step, this is a second step, this is a third step, you don't sort of say, oh, we'll do step two first just for that, because it won't work. You've got to go with step one, step two, step three, et cetera. And uh, likewise, some very good group problem-solving techniques that have been sort of using cards to write notes on and things have been turned into sticky notes that get put up on the wall, which is just another elaborate version of voting. Mm, Yes, which... You know, voting by its definition, you know, three against two. Well, two yep. people are not on board <laughs> for the solution. So how Correct, how bored we, in are they? Now we magically expect that they'll go off and make the decision <laughs> happen. You know, exactly. And then yep. we, we're curious as to why it doesn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I love it, Sean. I, um, you know, it's a, it's a particular interest and, and passion of mine, this team decision stuff, because I think Good. it's such an opportunity and, and teams – don't practice it and aren't aware of it and we just kind of assume it's going to happen and that's not how the world works you know so i love getting if i can get teams for a whole day let's go out and really get into it and and, you know get under the hood and and work on it i reckon the investment pays off you know absolutely tenfold twentyfold poor poor decisions lead to organizational problems which eventually leak out to the marketplace which eventually affects the long-term viability of the business that's it Sounds like a pretty powerful note to leave it on, Sean. Thanks for your input. Thank you. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.